right. Are we good to go? All right. I think. Is it on? Sorry. All right. Can you hear me? Perfect. All right. We're going to get started here. We'll give a few minutes for everyone to kind of file in, and we'll dive into Ephesians. Alrighty, let's go ahead and get started. So I hope you guys enjoyed um, reading through Ephesians. Um, it's definitely up there on my list of favorite books. Uh, it's uh, very, uh, very interesting, very practical, as Paul typically is in his books. He typically starts out with a lot of theology, a lot of uh, laying the groundwork, and then at the end, he typically like flips it. Like in this book, it's uh chapters five and six, where he kind of flips it, and he's like, all right, because of all that, because of all we've established in the first several chapters, this is how it should be applied in your life. So really quick, we're going to set the scene. So obviously the author is Paul. Um, the theme of this book is Christ's reconciliation of creation to himself um, and God, and then Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. It talks a lot about unity in inside the church and um, how we should be one as the body of Christ. Um, key verses, obviously, Ephesians 2.8.9, which we have in front of our church. Um, it talks about we're saved through grace alone, through faith in Christ. Um, we believe that this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, prison letters written in 62 AD. So Paul likely wrote this um, while he was in prison in Rome towards the end of his life as is with the next several um, books that we're going to be looking at, um, all written at the end. Um, Paul spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. Um, I believe I have this there. Let's see. Yeah. He, sent a, uh, he spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus, several years. Um, place of Ephesus was um, fascinated with magic. It was very, um, there was a cult. See that in the book of Acts, how, um, you know, they, uh, they had um, a lot of temples to... Um, false gods. Um, so let's start. So in uh, verse one, Paul addresses this letter to, and I'll go ahead and read it real quick. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So I think before we look at the book, I think it's important to look at who his audience is. So in this book, he's specifically writing to obviously Ephesus, but he's, he's writing it to the saints. He's writing it to the church. Um, so keep that in mind as we talk about um, the book of Ephesians, that this is written to believers. All right, so let's get started with chapter one. All right, so the first question was, according to Paul in verse four, when did God choose us? Yes, Craig. Before the foundation of the world. 
I don't know about you guys, but that blows my mind. Um, God didn't choose us after Adam and Eve sinned. God chose us before he even created the world. He chose us in him. And the word here that talks about choose is eklego. I'm going to do my best to pronounce these. Um, you guys probably won't know if I mispronounce them, but uh, I'm going to do my best. So in this verb tense, it signifies that God chose by himself and for himself for his glory. So there's the aspect of him doing it by himself and for himself to magnify himself. So we have this, this picture of election, and um, there's multiple different elections in the Bible, uh, three specifically. Can you, anyone think of, this wasn't a question, can anyone think of the different choosings that God did? Three of them. Any of them? So he chose, first off, he chose a people for himself, right? So he chose the nation of Israel as his people. And you see that throughout the Old Testament as Israel's chosen people of God. So there's that, that's the first one. Um, and it has no impact on salvation. There's no s- salvation um, applied with that election. There's also a vocational election. Okay, so this type of election we have, we see it in um, where God chose the Levites as his people to serve in the temple. Okay, we also see it where he chooses his 12 disciples. So he's choosing his 12 disciples um, and they're going to be um, with him for his earthly ministry. Um, so that's vocational calling. Here, this is talking about salvation, okay? So um, no one can come to the Father unless, he, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, okay? And this drawing, and I know there's, this is where it gets, you get into debate of, all right, well, there's free will, there's election, where's the balance? And um, the word here, when it's talking about drawing, it's kind of got the picture. I think the best example I, c- I could find was, you guys know in a salvage yard how they have those massive, like, magnets, all right? And it goes, and it picks up metal, all right? It picks up metal, it picks up copper, it picks up, uh, I believe it p- picks up steel. But what does it do with aluminum? Zero impact, right? The aluminum stays. It d- it's not drawn. Um, so I think in the Greek, the word is helku, um, and that's kind of the idea um, that it kind of carries with it. All right, so with the second question, what terms are used to describe us in verse 4? Yes, Jeff. Holy and blameless. Um, I don't know about you, but that's, that's kind of uh, humbling to think of the fact that holy and blameless, okay? Because in our sin... We're anything but blameless. We have all this, um, all this sin that separates us from God. And uh, so to sc- for us to be described as holy and blameless, free from guilt of trespasses and sins. We don't have to worry about that because of Christ's righteousness being imputed on our behalf. Um, uh, those terms are holy and blameless, blameless, which is uh, humbling. All right. So what did God predestine us for before the foundation of the world in verse 5? Yes, Will. Right. So adoption of sons. So this should almost sound very, very familiar. Uh, You'll notice through a lot of the New Testament books, there's a lot of similarities. So this sounds very similar to what we read last week in Galatians, where we've been adopted into the family of God. 
not only has he saved us, but we've been adopted into the family of Christ. And this adoption is through Christ and the work he did on the cross to save us from our sins. So how does it make you feel to consider the fact that God chose to adopt you as a son or daughter before Adam and Eve ever sinned? Yes, Corey. Right. Yeah, it's, it's uh, blessed. That's actually exactly what I put was blessed and thankful. Because it's not dependent on anything we did. It's not like there we had anything to, any bearing on that. God chose us. And for that, I mean, I can't imagine any other better response than an outflowing of thankfulness for what he's done, on, done for us um, to save us from our sins. So moving on to later uh, in chapter, what does it mean in verse 11 when it says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will? God is in 100% control. There is nothing outside of his control, which as believers, that should give us such encouragement, right? Because ultimately, God's in control and we don't have to fear what's going to happen to us or what might happen um, because we can rest in our Father knowing that he, he knows what's best. He knows better than we do. Um, and we can rest in that and we can rest in his sovereign control. So what has God given us as a guarantee or down payment of our inheritance until it is acquired? Verse 14. Yes. He's given us this Holy Spirit. So you got this, uh, this, uh, this idea of we have this pledge, all right? So when you put a down payment on a house, you put a chunk of money, all right? So in this aspect, the Holy Spirit is there for us, and it's an, irresist, an irrevocable pledge or, di- or divine engagement ring, which I, I was reading through um, MacArthur's commentary. He mentioned that engagement ring, all right, because we're going to be, right, we're the bride of Christ. So we've gotten that down payment or that pledge that this future, um, this future arrangement will be complete, and he's given us the Holy Spirit as that down payment. So... Um, What is the inheritance uh, referenced in verses 11 and 14? Oh, wait. uh, Did I read? Yeah. Yes, sorry. Right. So in studying this, this, this question was a little more complicated than I, uh, I first realized, apparently there's two renderings. Um, I believe that is probably the most accurate given the context. Um, another interpretation, which I, don't, I didn't find it as solidifying based on the context, was we are Christ's inheritance. Um, I think the better interpretation would be, as you said, eternity in heaven with Christ. Um, and I, th- I wrote down 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4, which I felt like kind of echoed this. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So we have that to look forward to as we um, serve our creator. Moving on to chapter 2. All right. 
According to chapter 2, what is our spiritual standing before God prior to salvation? This is echoed in verses 1 to 5. Yes, lost. Mm. Dead. So your spirit, before before Christ awakened you and made you alive, you were spiritually dead. There was nothing you could do to earn your salvation. There was nothing you could do to earn favor with God. You were in a state of spiritual death. And I, th- I was going to read verse 4, which I think you pretty much read it. But verse 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Oh, wait, that was chapter 1. My bad. But God, so he lays out this in chapter, in the beginning of the, of the chapter, explaining how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he flips it in verse 4, and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. All right, so we're in this state of spiritual death. There's nothing you can do. How depressing is that, right? There's nothing you can do, and then it's, But God, rich in mercy, he came to earth as a sacrifice for us. So, what did Christ do while we were dead, still dead in our trespasses and sins? Yes. Right. Yes. So he, he made us alive. He awakened us. And he, he seated us um, with Christ. That's, uh, that amazes me. And uh, there's nothing you can do to earn that, and there's nothing you can do other than to praise God for what he's done, making us alive, um, and saving us from our sins. All right, so moving on to the some of the key verses in Ephesians, for sure. What did, what did you do to z- deserve the grace of God? Nothing. You had nothing, all right? And I wanted to read it because in studying it, I don't know about you guys, I think I memorized Ephesians 2.8.9 when I was probably like five. And so every time I get to Ephesians 2.8.9, I glance over it, and I don't really think about it. And so when I was studying this week, I was, I was looking at Ephesians 2.8.9, and it struck me a little bit. And so I wanted to slow down really quick and read it for you guys. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, of hi- not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Sorry, I have old King James that I memorized when I was five. Um, so here, I want to ask you a question, because this is something that I didn't really think about until I was studying this week. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God in that verse? Yes. Redemption? Yes. Faith. So I don't know about you guys, but I've always read that, and I always read it as grace is the gift of God. But God gives the gift of faith. The faith is not your own. God has given the faith to believe in him as a gift. Because in and of ourselves, 
we would never have faith in God. We would never trust God because we're dead in our sins. So by God's grace, he gave us the gift of faith so that we could believe in him. Yes, Penny. So God, in his grace, has given us faith to believe in him and to trust him for our salvation. So moving on, what has the blood of Christ done for Gentile believers in verses 11 to 14? Yes, Clay. Right. Right, so I think the words that it, it mentioned specifically was it's broke down the dividing wall of hostility, all right? So I wanted to add a little bit of context to this because living in the day and age we do, I think, I think it helps to get a little bit be better of a picture. So this, this wall of hostility is going back to the temple. In the temple, there was a wall where the Gentiles were not allowed to go in. They were kept outside of that wall, okay? And there was a sign, and I didn't know this until I studied this week. There was a sign between them that said, no Gentile may enter within the barricade, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Right? So through the cross, Christ's death on the cross, he tore down that wall, okay? There's now no separation between Jews and Gentiles. And he's forming together one people for God. You don't have the Jews that can come in, get close, and the Gentiles have to stay on the outside perimeter. Christ has broken down that wall of hostility and made us one. Okay? And when Christ did die on the cross, he essentially got rid of all of the things that would have divided the two, right? So you've got your ceremonial laws, You've got your sacrifices, you have your feasts, you have your offerings. And in Acts chapter 15, as we looked at last week, none of that carries over, right? So essentially now it's salvation through Christ alone, and it doesn't carry over. So now you can have one people for God. You don't have Jews that are doing this and, you're, and staying on the inside, and Gentiles that are forced to stay on the outside. So Christ unified us to one people for God. So, uh, what was the purpose in 15 and 16? I think we kind of already said this. Created one people for God, right? So it unified us together. And now that we have access through the Spirit to the Father, what is our new standing before God? Citizens, right? Okay. We're citizens and saints in the, in the household of God. So anyone that is trusted in Christ is a citizen of heaven um, and is, is of the household of God, is grafted in, as Galatians would say, to the Abrahamic covenant and is grafted into the promises given. All right. So as believers, we are being joined together into what? In, verse, in, in uh, 21 and 22. 
Yes, Hodge. Right. So he he uh, he brings the temple back into it. So first so it was the dividing wall, and now he's like, look, the, t- the old temple isn't where God dwells, okay? He dwells, he's building us up, the church, into the temple, into the dwelling place of God because God lives inside of us. And this temple, it's, t- it's t- uh, growing up. This temple is still growing because the church isn't complete yet. And now in this, in this aspect of church, he's not talking about the church in Ephesus. He's talking about the, glo- the universal church, okay? The people that have believed in Christ and are being built up into a dwelling place, a temple, or a body of believers. So chapter 3, moving over right along. All right. There's here the mystery, okay? And we're going to notice, I think it was in Galatians. We're going to see the mystery in Ephesians, and I believe it's in, I know it's in Colossians. I think it's in Philippians as well. What is the mystery that has now been revealed in verse 6? Yes. Right. Yeah, so this mystery, the unfolding plan of redemption, the Old Testament saints, they knew about it, right? I mean, you've got your aspects of, you saw it in Genesis where um, he promised Adam and Eve that he would send someone to uh, cover their sins and to take away their sins. Um, We saw it, um, we we knew aspects, right? So we knew that he was going to come from the offspring of, he was going to be the offspring of David. So we knew that. We can see it in Isaiah chapter 53. So you can see like glimpses. So they knew pieces of what was going to happen. But they didn't have the whole picture. And they didn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them either to help them understand um, how this would all come about. So as Gentiles, um, and they also didn't understand how Gentiles were going to be grafted into this plan as well. They knew it was going to happen because they saw it with the promises made to Abraham, how your offspring um, through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So they knew that, but they didn't have the full picture. Whereas living, us living after the cross, we understand how Christ did it, and we understand how it all came about. But as the Old Testament believers, they didn't, they didn't understand, they didn't have the full picture that we have today. So how long has the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God been part of the plan? Hidden for ages, yeah. So this isn't this isn't a last-second plan of oh, I need to include the Gentiles as well. And as I mentioned, had just mentioned, he talks about it in you know with Abraham through you through your offspring all the nations will be blessed. Um, So, and that was in Genesis chapter 22. So it was part of the plan from the very beginning, Um, salvation for all people, not just Israel. Although Israel was God's chosen people, Israel was chosen to be a light to the other nations, right? Israel was supposed to magnify God and was supposed to, um, they were supposed to look at Israel and go, wow, look at that, look at their God. Um, And in the same way, we are supposed to be a people of God and we're supposed to reflect his goodness so that they look at us and say, wow, look at that person. Look at his God because it's our God, it's Christ who's made us who we are today. that. Next section. Paul includes a prayer to God in verses 14 to 21. What is Paul asking of God? What's he asking for for the uh, Ephesian believers? Yes. Spiritual strength. 
Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but it would be so encouraging to hear that Paul, the apostle, is praying for us. And he talks about in other books how he prays without ceasing. He's constantly in prayer. Um, and he also prays for strength for them to understand the immeasurable dimensions of God's riches in Christ. So he's praying for these Ephesians that they will understand, that they'll have spiritual strength. And uh, I think he talks, he'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to chapter six. But he's also praying that they'll understand the riches of God's grace. And I, I wanted to challenge you guys. I, I know that one area I feel like I struggle in is my prayer life. And how, how sad is that, right? We have direct access through God, access to God through Christ to lay our requests before him. And I think a lot of times we take that for granted and we don't think about the fact that we can talk to the God of the universe and we can um, lay a request at his feet and we can talk to him and we can have that relationship with him as our father. Um, so I wanted to challenge you to be in prayer and to pray fervently. Uh, Paul was praying for this, praying in this way for the church that he spent time at. How much are we praying for other people, but also how much are we praying for our church personally, okay? And that we would be a light to this world, light to this world, both as a church and individually to spread the gospel to, to those that do not know him. So moving on to chapter four. Wow, that's a lot of text. Gretchen, can you read that? Just kidding. She just got glasses to give her a hard time. All right, so what should we, what should we be eager to maintain within the church or the body of Christ? Yes, well, unity. All right. So, oh, did I click mine? I did. There we go. All right. Sorry about that. All right. So he, he lays out, he says, unity based on the truths of one God and w his one work of salvation. All right. So he goes through a list here. And what are some of the things that he lists um, to describe this, this unity? What, what, is, what's there, what are some of the things that he mentions? The whole list there. So he mentions, yes. One body. So there's, yep. Yes. So there's one church. There's not multiple churches universally. Okay. So th and this is, this is talking about universal. So there's one church. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one hope. Okay, our, our, our hope is to be holy and blameless before him and con being conformed to the image of his son. Okay? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one, okay? And Paul mentions this in Galatians as well, that there's one gospel, okay? There's not multiple ways. There's not multiple gods. There's not multiple spirits. It's one, okay? And the apostles all strove for that one um, that one faith, one gospel. So, as we learn and gain knowledge of the Son of God, what should be the result? Verse 13. Yes. Right. So, we shouldn't, we shouldn't continue to be um, little children or um, babies. We should grow up into maturity and to um, understand his word and to be... Um, to grow in his word. So on the flip side, Paul uses the metaphor of a child to describe those who are not mature in faith. 
what happens to those who are not grounded in what they believe? Verse 14. Yes. Right. So he's talking about, you want, he wants you to be spiritually mature because if you're not grounded in what you believe and you're not firm in what you believe, then you're going to hear this, this theology or you're going to hear this false teacher teaching. And sometimes the most dangerous theologies are things that are 90% true or 99% true. And it's just that 1% that's off. And sometimes if you're not grounded and you don't know the truth, those can seem pretty realistic. And you're like, oh, well, that, that sounds true. Um, I'm going to steal an analogy that my, my uh, youth pastor always used. People that work in banks work with money. They don't touch uh, counterfeit money. They don't go, oh, well, oh, this is a new counterfeit. Let me feel it. No, they feel the real stuff so much that when there's a counterfeit that comes through their hand, it's an instant, oh, this is false. This, this doesn't, this isn't real. Okay. And similarly, we should be so grounded in God's word that when something false comes along our path, it's like, whoa, 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 that's, that's not accurate. That's not true. And we are not tossed about by all the different waves of doctrine. So we're being joined together into one body. And who is the head of this body? Jesus, right? So we're, we're being joined into one body and Christ is the head of this body, okay? So Christ, um, growing up into, uh, so Christ leads, Christ directs, and guides the body. And we should be following him um, in it. All right. So as believers and followers of Christ, what should we put off? Old self. Right, so you've got this picture of um, uh, old self or new creation. Um, I think the word here is the verb is kind of the picture of taking off your old worn clothes. So you've got your old smelly, dirty clothes. Take it off and put on uh, your new creation. All right, so as believers, what should we be doing according to verses 23 and 24? Exactly. So it's, it's uh, being renewed. Um, and I think every time I hear about this, I think of Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Being renewed through God's word and uh, renewed in the spirit. Okay. So moving on, because I'm going to run out of time here. All right. As believers, our goal should be to be transformed through the renewal of our mind to look more like Christ. What can you do this week to continue to be pressed or conformed into the image of Christ? I think, I think Lisa kind of already said it, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the big one is obviously reading and meditating on God's word. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to meditate on it because if you read it, you're like, oh, that's nice. All right, I'm going to set that aside. If you're meditating on it, you're reading it, and then you're thinking through it throughout your day. You're going, and your, your mind is still set on what you read um, in God's word. And uh, it, makes, it makes a big difference. So I would encourage you guys to spend time in God's word, first off, and secondly, to meditate on it throughout the day and to pray that God would help us to apply it to our lives. All right, so 
that was chapters one through four. Now we're going to move on to five and six, which is the application. All right, so chapter five. We are to be imitators of God and walk in love. What example does Paul give of how Christ loved us? Yes. Right. The ultimate example of Christ giving the, um, the sacrifice for us. I think it's interesting in this verse that he, he mentions to be imitators as, chil- as beloved children. All right. So you get this picture here of a father and a son, and the son is trying to emulate the father, okay? And so in the same way, we should be imitating Christ in his love, his agape love, right? Because Christ loved us, and there was no conditions attached, and it was an unconditional love that he had for us. So we should show that love towards others. And this love is not natural. This is not something that you can do in and of yourself. What do you need to be able to love like Christ loved? This wasn't a question. You need the Holy Spirit, right? It's not, it's supernatural. You can't love like that without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. All right. So what does Paul use as an illustration in verses 7 to 14 to compare the former life before he came to Christ and now that we're in Christ? Two things, yes. Darkness to light, light. right. So he he lays out this example of darkness and light. And um, what does, uh, when we walk as children of light, what does it, uh, what does it do? It exposes the darkness, right? So if you're in a dark room and there's no light, what can you see? You can't see anything, okay? Then what what happens when someone comes in with a, with a flashlight or like a huge beacon. You can see everything, right? So at the same, in the same way, we should be the light of the world. So if someone's going, oh, well, it's just, it's just a little lie. We, we can just tell a little lie. No, you can't. That's, that's not honoring to God and that's not right, okay? So you're shining the light on the darkness of the sin so that hopefully those people will see the truth and they will understand um, and the sin will be seen for how ugly it truly is, rather than just remain in darkness and not be seen. So I mentioned, what are some practical ways that you can walk in this way and be distinct as followers of Christ? What are some ways that you could do this throughout your week? Yes. Yes. Love the world. Kindness. I thought specifically of honesty in the workplace. Um, it's easy It's easy to just kind of say, all right, well, this isn't going to hurt anyone. You can just lie. And actually, this is a conversation I had with a coworker this week. He's like, oh, well, if you stay in this industry, you're going to end up lying. And I'm like, I'm not going to do it. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of unbelievers think that things like that don't really matter because it's not really hurting anyone. You're not killing anyone. You're not doing something terrible. But at the same time, it is a sin, and it is not, it's a way that we can be distinct from the world, and we can be set apart for God, so that hopefully, they will see us, and they will see our life, and they will see Christ as well. All right, so moving on to chapter 6. All right, so chapter 6, so um, 
as we mentioned earlier, Ephesians is, or Ephesus was a fairly dark place. There was a lot of false, false teachers. There was a lot of um, magic and spiritual things were um, very evident. So we are to be imitator. Oh, wait, hold on. Right, so we, who is our enemy in this life? Right in verse 12. So Satan and his demons. Um, so Paul's reminding them that your battle is not with Joe down the street. You know, he may be doing something that's not right. But our, our warfare is a spiritual warfare. It's, a, it's something that isn't just um, one person versus one person. And obviously we do all have a sin nature and we all battle it, as Paul talks about in Romans. But uh, we're in a spiritual warfare. We're in a spiritual battle. Um, and we are to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might so that we can defeat these, um, defeat these demons and to stand firm in the truth. So moving through these really quick. So, and I studied these out because uh, this, was, this was interesting. I think a lot of times we don't, um, we read through and uh, we have, we, don't, we didn't live in the time period that this book was written. And so it was interesting to see what some of these words that he used here to describe this armor. Um, so he talks about taking up the um, um, t- taking up the uh, armor of God. Wow, sorry, brain freeze. Um, so first question is, what is the belt of what? Right, truth. All right, so first, the first thing I, th- I thought of it is I'm like, all right, well, I'm wearing a belt today, but if I'm going into battle, I don't really care if I'm wearing this belt, to be completely honest. But in that day and time period, the Romans wore a tunic, okay, which is a long, and it's big, and it's baggy, okay? So when you would go into battle, they would take up their robe and essentially tuck it into their belt. Because if you're going into battle, you don't want this huge wavy thing getting in your way and to hinder your, your motion. So he's talking about... Um, He's talking about there's this idea of being ready to move, okay, and not be um, so that that can't hold you down. So the belt of truth, okay, so be ready to be ready in the truth, be ready in um, what is true. All right, so the breastplate of what? What is the breastplate? Righteousness, all right, so that's to protect the vital organs, okay, and it's daily obedience to the Father and trusting in him and um, trusting in his righteousness to save us, all right? And the shoes of what? Correct, all right. So in, if a Roman soldier doesn't have shoes, what's gonna happen to his feet? Yeah, they didn't have roads like we have today. <laughs> they were marching, right? They didn't have cars, they didn't have tanks, they're marching, all right? So what good is a soldier if they didn't have shoes? Their feet are gonna be all torn up and when they get to the point where they're actually fighting, they're gonna be tripping, they're not gonna have any traction and they're not gonna be able to stand firm, okay? So be prepared by the gospel of peace. We have peace with God. We don't have to fear uh, what our standing is because we have peace, okay? Shield of what? shield of faith. All right. 
So here also, there's two types of Roman shields. There's one shield that was round, and it was typically one that you would run into battle with. And there was another one that was about four and a half feet tall by about two feet wide, and it was a massive shield. And I don't know if you guys have seen this in movies, but they would typically use it, and they would lock. They would lock their shields together to form a barricade, okay? And then they can hide behind, hide behind them so that nothing can get through. So it was to defend the whole body, okay? So in this way, we have trust in his son and his sacrifice and what he's done for us. All right. So the helmet of salvation. There we go. I gave it away. Helmet of salvation. All right. So here, I'm going to ask you guys a question. This wasn't a question. What is this salvation? It's easy to think. Well, this salvation is obviously. Oh, yes. Yes. So he's talking to believers here. So it's easy to read over this and go, oh, helmet of salvation. Oh, I got to have, you know, I got to have salvation. Well, he's already talking to believers. So you're not going to take up the helmet of salvation if you already have salvation, okay? It's, it's our hope in Christ and the hope that we are going to be ultimately, this, this war won't last forever. Christ is going to win in the end and we will have ultimate salvation from it and we will be with him in glory. All right, so the last one. The, the, the sword, I almost gave it away. What is the sword? The spirit, which is the word of God. All right, so here, is, here was another misunderstanding that I had. Uh, when I look at a Roman soldier, what do you think of the sword? I think of a big, long, like, four-foot, you know, iron, massive blade, all right? That's not the word that was used to describe the sword. The sword was actually more like a dagger, Okay, and this sword was typically about six to 80, 18 inches long, and they would keep it in their belt. Okay, and this it's so it's more think of it more like a dagger, which makes sense when you talk about the word of God being uh, quick and powerful, right? So this this sword was used both defensively because you could shield yourself from any attacks from the enemy, but you could also take it offensively. And um, it was very, it was a very de deadly weapon because it was very quick and it was very, very powerful. So it was typically used by the foot soldiers in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, and um, the word here is, um, I thought it was also interesting. The word here is not lo logos, uh, which is general, knowing the general statements. Um, so you're not a general knowledge of it. But the word here is rema which refers to individual words or particular statements. So knowing the specifics of God's word, okay? And if you think about it, when it comes to apologetics or defending your faith, or when you get into conversation with an atheist, having a general knowledge isn't going to do any good. It's having the specific knowledge of what the word of God says so that you can point them to it and that they can see the truth. All right. So I deviated a little bit from the book of Ephesians, a little bit. How does 1 Peter describe this enemy? Yes, Jeff. Right, right. So he's a prowling lion uh, seeking whom he can devour. And while this enemy sounds very intimidating, what are four things that God does for us according to 1 Peter? Yes, sorry. Yeah, how encouraging is that, right? 
So we're not left to fight this prowling lion by ourselves. We have God, and he's given us his promise. And I actually kind of wanted to close with this verse because I thought it was so encouraging. To God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He will have the dominion forever and ever, both in this age and the next. And we can trust in him and in his sovereignty. Uh, Let's go ahead and close in a quick word of prayer. Father, thank you for the fact that um, as believers, we can trust in you. We can trust in your word and help us to um, be diligent students of your word and to study your word so that we can know uh, what the truth is so that when we are faced with these trials or with these um, enemies that we can point them to your word, and that we can use your word both to defend and to um, convict sinners that they need you and they need a Savior. Help us to live for you this week, and we pray this in your name. Amen.